0: Welcome to In the Back Room with Bob Howard, where we will explore topics of leadership, motivation, sales, workplace dynamics, and trends that are shaping our future. Bob has spent the last 15 years as president of a subsidiary for a Fortune 1000 technology solutions company. Bob believes the foundation of leadership starts with integrity, self-awareness, communication, and empathy. Eleanor Roosevelt famously said, Great minds discuss ideas, average minds discuss events, small minds discuss people. So let's get started with your host, Bob Howard.
1: My guest today helps people and companies find mindful ways to reduce stress, feel more focused at work, and live a more balanced life using the skills she learned as a business professional and as a teacher of MBSR. Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. Cecilia has conducted free workshops and classes to those in the recovery community in New Hampshire and as a trained recovery coach. So uh, welcome, Cecilia. I'm really appreciative that you decided to join me today. I know that uh, a lot of people are really talking about mindfulness and meditation in the workplace and i also just recently shared a post and it was a harvard business review on leadership and managing people and the title of the article was the dalai lama on why leaders should be mindful selfless and compassionate what i really enjoyed about it there were three areas that he was speaking to about leaders and what they can do. And the three was be mindful, be selfless, be compassionate. And I just thought that was a very powerful statement coming from an individual that truly, you know, obviously has their thumb on mindfulness. And I know that, um, I would like to just initially start off with getting your thoughts and opinion on what, mindfulness is to you. Thanks,
2: Bob. And I appreciate you taking the time to add this into the podcast arena that you're doing. I think uh, for me, and I I think for a lot of people, um, it seems as though mindfulness and meditation comes in waves in terms of interest. I, I happen to think, and this is just my belief, that COVID brought about a uh, resurgence, a, a reinterest in the topic. Uh, people were stationary, not traveling to their jobs and to uh, to uh, see family members. And I think a lot of people felt very isolated and alone. And I do believe there was an uptick and... Uh, um, rise in the number of people that started to turn to alternative means to help them deal with this sense of, or this newfound sense of isolation and this new work, uh, this new way we're working from our homes and, uh, and schooling our kids in our, in our houses and things have changed dramatically. So I do think that there's, um, there is a, um, there is a rise and fall in terms of interest in mindfulness you'll always have those people who tend to stay consistent with their practice and and uh, and their belief but i think for the most part there's there's sort of a, a rise and fall in terms of when people turn to it and when they they turn away from it and i think for me that's one of the most critical pieces is that it's wonderful to find ways and means to help you deal with the stresses of life. But in order for mindfulness to really work consistently, you have to put in the time and effort with it. So you asked what the definition or what my definition of mindfulness is. And mindfulness to, to me and to a lot of people just means paying attention to what you're doing as you're doing it in the moment. So as I'm talking to you right now, as we're doing this interview, I'm being very mindful of staying on topic, listening to the questions, being present in the moment, and being aware of what I'm saying as I'm saying it without the 30 other conversations playing in my head like what do I have to do today what do I have to do tomorrow where am I going to be next week where's my shopping list what do you know and on and on and on so it's being focused on what you're doing while you're doing it and when you get
1: distracted
2: you just come right back to where you were at
1: now that's great advice i know that um I struggle with always being in the moment, not trying to think, you know, a couple of, you know, steps down the road. And the founder and CEO of salesforce.com had shared with the San Francisco Gate that he first started practicing meditation when he was moving up through the ranks of Oracle. And he said that to him having a beginner's mind informs my management style i'm trying to listen deeply and the beginner's mind is informing me to step back so that i can create what wants to be not what was i know that the future does not equal the past i know that i have to be here in the moment which i thought was a you know profound statement coming from a ceo of a major cloud company right mm-hmm. um And I know that in the past, there's been conversations that you've had with leaders who have been very open and some that seem maybe the word I'm looking for is unsure of bringing it into the workplace. Can you uh, maybe discuss that for a moment?
2: I, I certainly can. Um, it is It is interesting, and that's a wonderful piece that you read, because I, I see this as, as sort of a, a two-part answer. Um, first of all, I love what this individual that you quoted had to say about beginner's mind it's so important that when we are working with mindfulness that we go easy on ourselves and that we recognize that all of us are beginners even the gentleman that you named at the beginning the dalai lama who seems to be everybody's sort of iconic image of the the perfect meditator and yet it's taken him years to be where he is and this is this is um Part of his practice, part of his life. And he does this full time. Most of us aren't doing that. We're not sitting on top of a mountain with our hair flowing and the wind blowing in the breeze and saying goodbye to everything we're doing. We're living life, we're taking care of our kids, we're shopping, we're. We're doing things, we're working, we're trying to juggle family and and the stressors of jobs and work and, and on and on and on. So we don't have that ability to be living in this uh, mindful world 24-7, 365 and, and turning it into more of a practice. So beginner's mind allows us to say to ourselves, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to be human. A lot of people have the the mis- um, I won't say misguided, but the misperception that mindfulness means that we're sort of robotic, that we're not emotional, that we don't feel things. And we do. Uh, People who are mindful probably feel their feelings and are more in touch with themselves at an even deeper level than most people realize so it is a, it, it is very much about being forgiving and allowing yourself to start over and to listen, to really listen to people. And I think that's what that, that quote and that gentleman was trying to, to say it's uh, it's so profoundly important. And then when it comes to, I'm sorry, there was a, and I I drifted off, my train left the uh, station. There was a (laughs) second part to it. And what was the second part that you had, Bob, the question?
1: Well, it was more about, you know, in the current environment, there's certain CEOs and leaders who are very open to it and some that are still you know, let's say nervous, because they don't necessarily understand exactly what it it means. So I know that you've seen that with just, you know, doing some of the sessions at certain companies that have had you in. you can definitely tell people that are open to it, some that seem to be a little more guarded. But then after they may even participate, they definitely it's almost like the shades of you know, rolled up right. or the lights go on.
2: No, then thank you for that. And again, you know, that was a, a, a wonderful example of mindfulness at play right there. I lost my my, my track, you know, uh, not robotic, don't have a way to always know uh, what we're going to say, when we're going to say it in the moment. And and then not being afraid to ask uh, to, to uh, again, let you know that I needed sort of some guidance to bring me back into that um the conversation we were having. Really good question, Bob, because it's one of the things that I um, don't really have uh, an answer for other than giving people the opportunity to try to bring mindfulness into the workplace, allowing it to happen and to to maybe face those fears that we have about it or that these individuals have about it and, and allow it to happen anyway and just see where it takes them. I think what, and again, I can only speak for myself um, and the experiences I've had, there's some companies that are very open to the experience of having uh, someone come in and and teach um, mindfulness and about uh, taking mindfulness into the workplace and how that can help. And a lot of people have this image of, okay, does that mean I have to set up a meditation room and are my employees going to be not working and they're going to be leaving their desks and they're going to have their eyes closed and zoning out and they're not going to work as hard and their productivity is going to go down because they're practicing meditation. And the problem is a lot of those folks don't realize that there is, um, There's the formal practice of mindfulness, which is meditation. And then there's mindfulness. Now, this, again, is just my take on things, and it's how I tend to teach mindfulness. Mindfulness is all the things that we do to stay in the moment so that we're able to process information in a much more clear and focused way. Meditation is the formal practice of mindfulness. Does it help? Absolutely. Does it mean we have to do it in the workplace? No. Does it mean we have to change uh, our our work environment to accommodate people to be able to practice meditation? That would be lovely, but it doesn't mean we have to. And does it mean the workforce is going to zone out and not be paying attention? Absolutely not. Mindfulness teaches us how to pay attention to what we're doing better than how we're doing it. And I can say that in all sincerity, because I know when I'm being mindless. I know those times when I am not being mindful. And when I was in the workforce in a traditional sense, where I was working for um, a large company and I was in the sales industry... I, I know there's those times when you're just so overwhelmed by whatever it is that's happening, whether it's happening at home or happening at the workplace, there's this sense of overwhelm. And when you get overwhelmed, it's hard to find your way through it sometimes. And that's when productivity goes down. That's when people have a Tendency to maybe call in sick a little bit more often, or to have um, other having other ways of showing that there's some unhappiness going on in their life that may be personal, it may be professional, and it shows up in their work. So, with just some tweaking, just some playing with mindfulness and learning some really simple techniques, um makes all the difference. It really does. You know, I, I wish I could wave a magic wand and take away that fear, um, that some corporations and some individuals have and, and take away some of the, um, the misperceptions surrounding mindfulness and, and what that means. So I think if we can just Take anything away from this talk today, Bob, I'd love people to just come away with the sense that mindfulness is about really learning how to pay attention in the present moment to what's happening so that you're clear, you're, you're much clearer focused on what you're doing as you're
1: doing it. Yes, which I 100% agree with. And, you know, even... During our discussion right now, I find myself uh, listening to your voice on my headphones and being like, man, Cecilia sounds amazing on it. And I'm like, all right, get back in a moment, pull myself back (laughs) from that standpoint. And I know that, you know, you went through the MBSR training at UMass Medical School so you could teach their program. Can you explain a little bit about MBSR and the founder's? Of uh, the program? Sure, Bob. Um, MBSR
2: uh, stands for Mindfulness Based Stress Reduction, and it's a program that was established well over 30 years ago uh, by Dr. John Cabot Zinn, uh, who uh, is the founder of the entire program. When it first started, it was simply called the Stress Reduction Program. And John was looking for a way um, to help people at UMass Medical School who he felt the medical world was sort of leaving by the wayside. You know, a lot of times doctors reach a point in your medical um, work, your medical uh, uh, treatment where there's nothing more that they can do. And John felt that there was this huge gap in the medical world where people were being abandoned and, and being left. And John had been a long-time uh, meditator and practice uh, practitioner of yoga. So he developed a program with the uh, permission of the, um, the uh, upper folks at UMass Medical School. And uh, this program combined yoga and mindfulness and meditation in a way that allowed people to take charge of their own life so that you didn't feel the sense of hopelessness or helplessness. And when he first started it, it was um, it was free, and people were able to come to the program uh, who chose to, and it just it just took off from there. It just grew in leaps and bounds to the point that now worldwide, and you know it's it's uh, been a while since I've looked at the statistics and the numbers, but I would say there's easily over seven thousand programs worldwide at this point. I, I couldn't even attest to how many mindfulness-based teachers there are worldwide. UMass Medical School has a, a wonderful program where they not only teach uh, people to, uh, uh, to uh, teach the actual program, but they also uh, have numerous programs going daily that enable people to actually learn the program at the same time. So it teaches us... Um, it really teaches people how to deal with those stressors I was talking about in a in a much more mindful capacity, and um, I just wanted to say one thing really quickly because again. It- Uh, part of what I like to do when I teach about mindfulness is get uh, kind of smash those iconic images and those perceptions, misperceptions that we have about what's meditation, what is mindfulness. And one of the things I wanted to talk about or just mention real quickly was yoga. Um, Yoga is actually meditation in movement and meditation is the practice of coming back to yourself over and over and over, coming back to what you're focused on when you're meditating. That's why a lot of people often uh, will practice silently with no music in the background, very quietly. And we often use the breath, coming back to the breath over and over. So what happens when we're doing yoga we are focused on the movement that we're doing. We're in the present moment with the movement. So the combination of practicing meditation, coming back to the breath, yoga, being with the body, and mindfulness, which are all the techniques that we learn how to handle ourselves, how to be with ourselves, enables us to actually learn a lot more about ourselves than we ever thought we'd know. And um, I can't say enough about it. I mean, I think it's wonderful. John has done an outstanding job and uh, he, has, um, he has amassed a, a wonderful group of people who continue on uh, his teachings and his trainings in a, in a phenomenal way. So if you ever have the opportunity, I would say to your audience, certainly try to partake of an MBSR program. It, is, it, it will change your life,
1: literally, literally change your life. So I have to say that he has what I consider to be one of the best uh, book titles ever. And um, I'm going to let you say what it is. Uh, Is it
2: Wherever You Go, There You Are?
1: Yes, Wherever You Go, (laughs) There You Are. I just love that because it really is mindfulness and almost a title. Right. Right. Um, It's true. And one of the um, things that, I was going to ask you, was to, um, because I went and I participated in the MBSR program after you went through the program and the training program. And I thought it was, you know, one of those things where the misconception of individuals that are participating, but they were all there because they all felt that they could benefit from the program. And the individuals who were there were from all walks of life all socioeconomic, um, racial, gender, you name it. People were there trying to learn how to deal with the daily stresses. And there was a, um, I'm going to call it, I don't know what you call it, an exercise. Yes, an exercise. And um, since, you know, we're sitting here doing this, I'm going to hand you a pen And if you could maybe just kind of walk us through that one thing, because sometimes we don't even realize when we're tensing up. And I just thought it was such a simple process that they did. And it just really helped turn a light on for me at that point in time. So I'm hoping that you understand which one I'm talking about. Of course I do. (laughs)
2: Um, It's one that I love to use when I uh, am teaching mindfulness or meditation because I think so many of us are are tactile learners. Um, A lot of us, as we age, uh, and we hate to admit it, but we become less attuned to Auditory means of of learning, and we need something else, whether it's visual or tactile. And this is one of those exercises that that has that visual, it has that tactile, um, and and really hones in, I think, a lot um, on the um, the understanding of how to use mindfulness in your life. So, if if anybody wants to do this along with me, you're welcome to do it. What you do is uh, just grab a pen or a pencil and very lightly. Just hold it in a flat palm, uh, your left hand or your right hand. It doesn't matter which hand you place it in. And you're just going to drape the pen or the pencil across your open palm and hold it up so that it's supported in your hand. And what I want you to do is think of that pen or that pencil that you're lightly holding onto as the stresses in your life, whatever it is that's overwhelming you at this moment, something that's a challenge for you. And that pen is now that stressor in your life. And then what I want you to do is close your hands very tightly around that pen. And I want you to feel the tension, not only in your fingertips and in your hand, but in your forearm. You might even feel it in your upper arm, depending on how you're uh, seated or standing right now. You might feel it in other parts of your body. You may actually feel your stomach start to clench or your toes curl. But I want you to just tightly, tightly hold on to that. That's how our body and our mind grips on to the stressors in our life. We hold on to it so, so tightly like that. Now what I want you to do is think about the number of times people have said to you, oh, just let it go. Oh, just stop thinking about it. Oh, just don't pay attention to it. And then what I want you to do is open your hand, turn it, and let the pen drop. Just let it drop out of your hand. Now, the wonderful aspect of it is we have gotten rid of the stress. It's disappeared. It's not there any longer. But we really haven't learned anything about how to take care of it. So, what happens is that stress has a way of creeping back. So, I want you to pick up the pen again. And again, I want you to hold it tensely in your hand. I want you to clasp it tightly, feel that tension in the body. And this time, I want you to think about mindfulness. And all I want you to do is take an inhalation through your nostrils. And as you exhale, I want you to just release your fingertips. And just open that hand feel that tension start to relax in your fingers feel the tension start to relax in your body in your arm this is mindfulness now the stress is still there it's still there in our hand we haven't dropped it we haven't run away
1: from it i can still feel the weight of it
2: right it's yep. you're very you're very aware that it's still there but you're able to be with it And that's a wonderful, um, beautiful example of how mindfulness can be in our lives when we're dealing with very high stress situations. Doesn't mean you're not going to feel the stress. Doesn't mean you're not going to feel tension in your body, but it allows you to be with what's happening as it's happening in a, I like to say, gentler way in a much gentler way. And one of the things I wanted to say, Bob, when you do that exercise with a group of people, it's amazing (sighs) to feel just the tension go out of everybody's body when they relax that hand.
1: Yeah, it's definitely amazing. And (laughs) through whether it was a body scan or anything else, I know that a lot of times when I really stop and I think and talking about stressors, I don't even realize all the times where my jaw is kind of clenched. And then all of a sudden, somebody will say something and I'll be like, oh, yes. And then I let that tension go. So that mindfulness and being in the moment, similar to like when you're driving and, you know, all of a sudden, 20 minutes later, you're at work or you're wherever and you really don't remember. The drive.
2: You know, that's a really good uh, example, Bob, and one that I'll toss out to people too, because I, I think having actual tools to work with is really helpful when it comes to mindfulness. We don't recognize that tension in our body. And what happens is we become so accustomed to carrying that tension with us that it becomes normal and we normalize that tension in our bodies. So just with that simple pen exercise or just sort of slowing down every now and then when you're feeling that sense of overwhelm, you don't necessarily have to close your eyes, but just start to be aware of what your body feels like and see if you can notice the tension in those key places that we often hold it, our abdomen, our shoulders, our feet, and our hands. Those are often the four places that tense up really tightly when we're feeling stress so that our breathing becomes very restricted when we are tightly holding our shoulders or we are feeling that Uh, tightness in our abdominal or belly area. So just being able to notice that throughout the day, when you're sitting at your desk, when you're working, even when you take a break and go for lunch, just be aware, you know, relax your belly, relax your shoulders, feel them soften. Most of us are walking around with our shoulders up so close to our earlobes We don't even realize by the end of the day why we have such terrible upper back strain you know, and we're talking on phones and headsets and we're leading towards computers. So our upper back really takes a beating when it comes to working for those of us who work sitting down. That's why a lot of people switch to those standing up desks. But, but again, those, those, uh, those still come with a whole set of other issues, which is lower back strains. So just be aware of the tension in your body every now and then, and just see if you can breathe in, breathe out, and just allow the body to relax a bit more.
1: No, it's great advice. I know that on the iWatch, they actually have an application that you can turn off if you want. But I suggest everyone that has the watch, turn it on where certain times throughout the day, it will remind you to breathe. And then it has a little screen that will come up showing you to take a deep breath, let it out, which I think is you know, another easy, great way to try to build that into uh, one's life. And then... In- and, and
2: Bob, if you wouldn't sure. mind, if I could just... You you mentioned a word that that I just wanted to hone in on because, again, I think it's a, one of those words that, that has a lot of misperception. People hear that word breathe and they're like, but I'm already breathing. What do you mean? What are you talking about? When, when mindfulness and breath is talked about, of course we're breathing. If we're not breathing, we wouldn't be here talking right now. Um, when mindfulness is, it, when we're talking about breathing in a mindful context, we literally are talking about bringing the attention to the breath. We breathe all day long, but we're not conscious of it. It happens on its own. So when we bring attention to the fact that we're, let's say we're feeling tension, from whatever's happening in our lives and, and you feel this sense of, of tightness in the body, just being aware of that breath as you inhale through your nostrils, and as you exhale through your mouth. So you're being very aware of that inhalation inward and that exhalation outward. That's what we mean by breath and breath awareness and noticing your breath. It's taking the time to actually be with that breath. And one other thing I just wanted to add, the reason why we use the breath so often in meditation is because it's the ultimate mobile device your breath goes everywhere you go it's been with you from your inception all the way through your last breath on earth so that breath is it is it's key to life but it's also an inexpensive way to have something to focus on because we can't always turn on music to relax us. We can't always turn on the TV to watch a show to make us laugh or pick up a book to draw our attention away. The breath is a wonderful means to focus.
1: I know that in 2019, the New York Times in their health section had an article, and it was written by a gentleman, uh, Matt Richtel, and hopefully, you know, I got the name uh, pronounced correctly. And the name is called, the name of the article was The Latest in Military Strategy, Mindfulness. And it just starts off real quickly that um, as a commander of the coalition forces in Iraq, Major General Walter Piat juggled ruthless pursuit of enemies and delicate diplomacy with tribal leaders using a trove of different, you know, tech-generated data, all this other information. But it also said his best decisions relied on a tool as ancient as it is powerful. He began daily operations by breathing deliberately, slack-jawed, and staring steadily at a palm tree. And I thought that was very powerful because it is seeping into the military, and then uh, also within the british and royal air force is starting to bring that into place because they do see a benefit of people being able to you know go in and make better decisions when they are in that moment and that they try to at least bring down the stress level as much as they can because i'm sure they have very stressful situations but having that approach i think is uh pretty powerful and just, you know, military in general, you know, they're not going to roll anything out that they feel isn't going to help people be more effective. So I wasn't sure if you had any thoughts on that.
2: You know, I do. Um, And again, it's one of those things that uh, it's, it's been around in the military now for quite a number of years and has also branched out into the um, the police force, fire, rescue, uh, hospital workers you know uh, folks who are on the front lines of dealing uh, daily minute by minute sometimes with some incredible amounts of of stress i've uh i've had the uh the uh, good fortune in my past to work with uh fbi agents and and police when i was involved in the banking industry for a number of years and uh the war stories that you would hear these uh men and women talk about were were just numbing i mean mind numbing and, uh, we often don't realize, um, that it, uh, it's, it's PTSD oriented, uh, very, and a lot of these people are, are traumatized by the work that they do and the things that they see. And, um, it's wonderful that so many, um, so many different, uh, branches of service and, uh. You know, non-corporate uh, areas uh, are looking into the ways and means to, to help their workforce become more focused. It was interesting, even when you were quoting the article or talking about the article and you mentioned about the slack-jawed uh, meditation that he would do in the morning, I immediately felt my own jaw relax and I wasn't even aware of the tension I was holding in my jaw. Uh, it, it it was just... Uh, you know, it was a wonderful way for me to be aware of my own tension in my body, just when you said that. So I, I think it's wonderful. And I, I think it's here to stay. Um, and I think the more people that uh, become aware of this, uh, the better we will be. And and I don't want to jump the gun because I, I don't want to the, want the, know what the next thing is that you're going to talk about, but it's in our schools and uh, there's so many phenomenal programs that have been established now to help teachers and students alike handle the stressors from, uh, from preschool all the way through uh, the um, secondary and uh, college and, and even beyond college. So I'm, I'm really impressed to see where mindfulness and meditation and, and uh, all this work is, is going and I, I'm hopeful that more and more people will truly see the benefits of it.
1: Yeah, it, you know, really does make a difference. And I know also um, in the article there was a doctor Ja who had spoken about, and I know a bit about this previously, just because of uh, your background in teaching of mindfulness and meditation. You know, they were saying the science shows that the technique that focuses and calms the mind allow people to perform better and make them less likely to overreact to incoming, you know, stimulation, whether a flash of movement, sound, or an onslaught of information on a device. And, you know, so when it does come to business and it does come to leadership, anything that can help focus and calm the mind and that the science shows that it helps them to perform better is absolutely something I feel should be, you know pretty much trumpeted at companies. Um, And then also they talk about the neuroscience. And I know that in this article, they use some different terminology than you've used in the past, but they talk about strengthening a part of the mental capacity as they were in quotes, calling working memory Uh, short term moment to moment catalog of tasks understood by scientists to effectively hold only a few pieces of information at one time. But I know that you talk about neuro, uh, I'm going to screw it up. Science. Well, neuroplasticity. Oh, neuroplasticity, right. Yes. So could you explain uh, just real quickly what that means? Uh, because I do know the benefits from meditation uh, absolutely helps that aspect of uh the medical side.
2: Sure. There, you know, there was a a long, long time in the, uh, the world of, uh, medical science where we were unaware that the brain had the capacity to change. Uh, we had thought, you know, when, once somebody suffered a stroke or, or suffered any sort of trauma to the brain, that, that things, uh, stayed the same and that there wasn't going to be any sort of, um, anything that we would be able to do to, to help that individual. And we've learned uh, through different therapies and different studies and scans of the brain that it's not true, that the brain actually learns how to rewire itself in many situations. Neuroplasticity, um, in my very non-science way of speaking, uh, just is dealing with the fact that the brain can change, that the brain doesn't have to stay static. It doesn't have to stay as it is. And what happens um, when we connect neuroplasticity to mindfulness is all of us um, from birth are sort of, um, we have been conditioned, for lack of a better word, to react to stressors in our lives in a particular way. And we learn that. We learn that from when we're very young. We learn it by watching our parents and how they handled stress. We learn it from watching our friends and other adults around us. And as we start to age and grow up, that becomes our response to stress and how we deal with the stressors in our lives. So what happens is when we start to recognize that maybe we need some help with how we're handling stress in our lives and we start to work with mindfulness, we learn that we can literally change the structure of the brain so that we don't go to those places all the time that we learned. It's almost like a, uh, like a, uh, Think of it like a rubber band, you know, where you stretch out a rubber band and then you release it and it goes right back to its original position. That's what it's like with for many of us when we deal with stressors in our lives. We, we stretch it out a little bit, but then we bounce right back to what we know to be true or what we know feels comfortable. I think that's probably a better way to put it. We have a comfort level with reacting to things the way we do. And many of us, most of us, we don't like change. People just don't like change. So what happens with mindfulness is we're learning to react or respond differently to a situation. Matter of fact, one of the, the quotes that I love about mindfulness is we're learning how to respond, not react. And that's, a beautiful thing, you know, that can really help us because in that moment, when we are choosing to respond, we're actually being mindful about how we're responding to that particular stressor in that moment. When we react, that's that knee jerk response to stressors that we learned from our childhood, from our childhood forward. So, um, I hope that answers, helps to answer the question. I am, I'm not a therapist, but, um, you know, and one other thing, Bob, that I just wanted to say too, a lot of times when you're working with mindfulness, you, you encounter people who come in it from a, a very, um, cerebral way. And they they're used to doing things in a very cerebral way. So it's it, I I was one of those people. I was one of these you know thinkers and and one of these very focused people who just felt if I read 15 million books I would get the answer. And I think I've learned to be very humble in this mindfulness process uh, and to understand that some things you really can't pick up from reading a book. And it does help when you actually dive in and just do the practices, just do some of the the exercises like that one you talked about with the pen, or just taking that moment to breathe into what's happening. Just those simple changes can make bring profound changes in our lives.
1: Yes. No, absolutely. I remember um, if People don't know by now. Obviously, uh, Cecilia is my wife. So, uh, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> poor, poor Cecilia. So, the uh, first time that I remember uh, really attending a meditation class or anything like that was in Cambridge, and there was an event where you can go around to all these different, you know, businesses and buildings and participate in different programs. And I remember sitting there and they were like, okay, we're going to meditate. And then I'm sitting there for the next 40 minutes torturing myself going, okay, I can't stop thinking. So I started beating myself up internally in my mind going, okay, it looks like all these other people are doing pretty good with this meditation and obviously having a clear mind and nothing being in their mind. Because at that point, that's kind of what I thought, right? The whole point of meditation was being able to... Clear your mind. And I'm thinking clear, being nothing on it. And so the parts about, you know, what John Kabat Zinn always said regarding non judgmental is pretty important uh, around that because I was judging the hell out of myself at that point in time. And it wasn't until a little bit later where I really understood what it was and what that kind of meant. So you know when people are doing that you find that at first a lot of people don't really understand that part of you know the mind when someone's being uh, mindful or meditating that the brain's going to keep running away right the, the mind the thoughts
2: absolutely and it's it's if I had a dime for every time somebody says to me I'll, I'll learn how to do it when I can find the moment or I'll learn how to do it when I can stop thinking or I'll learn how to do it when I'm able better able to focus um, it, it's amazing how many people don't understand that you know That's exactly when you need to practice when things are sometimes at their worst is, is when the practice really is profoundly uh, helpful for a lot of folks. Um, there's always been that again, you know, like, like I mentioned in the beginning, I like to tear down those sort of iconic images or those misperceptions people have about meditation. And one of them is that you are uh, training yourself to have no thoughts. And that is absolutely not what meditation or mindfulness is about. You, uh, your brain does what it wants to do. All of our brains do what it wants, do what they need to do, or what it wants to do, uh, and we can't stop that. So, what we're learning to do through meditation and mindfulness is pay less attention to the the running commentary that goes on in our brain, and bring our attention to whatever we're asked to do for that moment of meditation. And it could be something as simple as following each inhalation and exhalation. It could be the practice of yoga where we are very mindful of our body as it's moving. It could be something, um, it could be a guided meditation where someone's actually speaking very gently and softly and you're paying attention to what they're saying as they're saying it. And you know, I do remember that, that trip to Cambridge. I, I, it's almost as though I was right there in that moment because I remember the teacher. I remember, um, you know, both of us had wanted to try meditation and I remember the noise coming from the open windows and it was in, it was, yeah, it was in downtown Cambridge and it was just so noisy. And, you know, I was in a state of heightened anxiety and it was extremely difficult to sit in that situation. So for me, um, what really helped me in my mindful journey, because it it really is, um, I can't name any one particular thing that started it. But for me, the most important thing to have learned along the way is to understand that um, noise, distraction, it's all a part of life. Uh, We can't turn off the sounds around us uh we can turn off a radio we can turn off a tv we can choose to create as much silence as we can but we can't stop our neighbor from turning up his lawnmower and we can't stop the car from driving down the street you know and on and on and on so that's why a lot of people who often practice mindfulness practice it without music or sound in the background, because they're learning to be with life as it is. They're learning to be with the sounds around us as it is. It doesn't mean that you're not going to get tense when you hear the, you know, a fire alarm go off or a or uh, your cat, you know, meowing at the door or your dog barking to go outside. It just means that we're learning how to handle that in a better way. So um, it's interesting that you brought that up, because a lot of people do have that misperception that um, mindfulness is about not having any thoughts. And it's about paying less attention to that running commentary in the head.
1: Yes, and I know at the MBSR program that I participated in, what I thought was interesting was the breathing exercises that they were having us participate and do uh, was just when you're breathing in to just notice the air, obviously going through your nostrils, how it feels all the way down into you know the lungs and how the uh, area would expand. And then on the release of the... Um, um breath to you know just go one and then breathe in again and on the out breath go two and it was, the point of it was just to get to 10 and then start off at one again and it was funny uh how often that sometimes you'd do that really well uh in let's say a 5 minute period but there'd be a ton of times where you would get as high as 3 and then all of a sudden Soon as your mind takes off and you're thinking about the weather or the drive, back, or you get to 105, yeah, and you're which I've on, done where so you're many like, times. Hey, I'm only supposed to go to 10. I couldn't get to 10, but right. The non-judgmental part was that's okay. It's just showing you that's what your mind does. Just go back to one. Start again and go through uh, the process.
2: Which takes us almost full circle to what you said at the beginning. And again, I don't remember the gentleman uh, who you mentioned, but he talked about beginner's mind. And that's what you're doing in that practice. You're not berating yourself. You're not getting angry when you miss the count, when you lose your way. You just go, all right, I got up to 105. Whoops, let me start at one again. So that non-judgmental piece is important, um, because that's what I like to refer to as being gentle with ourselves. A lot of us have very harsh inner voices. We talk very mean to ourselves internally. We beat ourselves up. And again, that's, that's a lot of learned, uh, responses to dealing with stress. The, some of those voices aren't even our own. they are other people we've encountered in, in our life. So what we're learning to do is, really find that true voice, that's us, and and to treat ourselves kindly. You know, there's a wonderful example they give in, um, in mindfulness training. Uh, often, a lot of teachers will use this as an example. If you have a puppy that you're trying to paper train, and we, anybody who's had a puppy knows how difficult it is, to, to train uh, an animal to, to learn to either go outside or in a particular area where you want them to go, if you did nothing but scream and yell at that animal, it would get trained. It would get trained. But think of the cost of doing that, you know, with that anger and that intensity, you um, And yet so many people, uh, this is sort of how they face life, you know, with this anger and intensity, like you have to be this way, you have to do it this way. But if we were to treat that puppy with kindness and compassion and just gently continue to place them back on the paper and work with them, sure, it's going to take a little longer, but they're going to get there in the same way without all of that tension and anxiety and anger and all the baggage that comes with treating that animal in a really cruel capacity. So when you catch yourself speaking harshly to yourself, that's another one of those aha moments. You know, I'll call them those light bulb moments where you just say, why am I doing this? You know, why am I doing this? I I need to speak more gently to myself.
1: No, absolutely. And you know what I find is interesting because the kind of the last thing I'm going to mention um, as we finish up is that the um, le- when we talk about leadership and you know part of the article from HBR Harvard Business Review is they are talking about the Dalai Lama who obviously is a Buddhist, but sometimes you know I think people need to sometimes understand you can separate a religion, but the practices behind the religion can have a lot of value to folks. So whether, you know, in essence, right, the rosary for Catholics is a form of mindfulness and meditation because you're going through a process and it's repetitive and it helps to calm someone uh, and be more focused on what they're doing in the moment. So, That's why, you know, I thought it was great that they based this article off the Dalai Lama. And I'm not sure when I copy and pasted this information if it was from a different website or from that article, but it stated that the Buddhist tradition describes three styles of compassionate leadership the trailblazer, who leads from the front, takes risks, and sets an example, the ferryman, who accompanies those in his care and shapes the ups and downs of the crossing and the shepherd who sees every one of his flock into safety before himself. So there's three styles, three approaches, but what they have in common is an all encompassing concern for the welfare of those they lead. And, you know, to me, as I'm exploring the leadership topic on these podcasts is that's just such a powerful way to look at it because not everyone's going to lead in the same fashion. And I just really enjoyed that article. I enjoyed everything that you presented to us today. And there's probably another couple hours we could easily do on this topic. But what I am going to do is ask you to close out today's podcast, any which way you would like to close it out. (laughs) Would you like me
2: to, uh, maybe have everybody just close your eyes right now at this moment who's listening to this podcast. I'd like you to just gently close your eyes for the moment, wherever you're at. If you're driving a car, certainly we're not going to be closing our eyes. But for those of you that have the ability to close your eyes at this moment, if you could do so. And I'd like you just right now to just notice where you're seated. Maybe feel the seat that you're sitting on, where you're making contact with your body, where your arms are making contact with the chair you're seated in. And even if you're driving the car and we know we can't close our eyes, maybe just paying attention in the present moment to your hands on the steering wheel, your foot on the gas pedal. Just bringing your attention into the moment to what you're doing as you're doing it. And then just very gently inhaling through your nostrils and exhaling slowly through the mouth. Inhaling through the nostrils and exhaling through the mouth. It's a very calming way of breathing. Inhaling through the nose, exhaling through the mouth. It really slows the heart rate down. Calms the autonomic nervous system, brings balance into the body, mind. And then just open your eyes again and just bring your attention back to the road and to whatever you're doing in this moment. Hopefully, you had your eyes tuned to the road as we were doing this. But just remembering that mindfulness doesn't have to be done with eyes closed. It could be just simply paying attention to what you're doing in the present moment. There's a, a gentleman um, of mine who's been a student uh, follower of a lot of the classes that that I've been teaching over the years. And he uh, sent me a text recently about a meditation that he had heard about called, I think it was called Rub- Rubik's Cube Mindfulness. And uh, it's where you you practice using the um the Rubik's cube in a very mindful capacity. And he found it was very calming to his, his body and his mind to be able to do this. And this is a gentleman who's in his late seventies, uh, early eighties. And, uh, and he had asked me if I had uh, ever partaken of that particular mindfulness episode uh, exercise, and I said, "Well, for me, it's it's not relaxing because I'm not a fan of the Rubik's cube." But I, but what I did say to him was that that's a perfect example of mindfulness, you know, and um, it's different for everyone, you know. Anything, any task that you're doing that you pay attention to as you're doing it is mindfulness ironing clothes, washing the dishes, brushing your teeth, whatever it is. As long as you're paying attention to what you're doing as you're doing it and not thinking about 30 million other things in your mind, you're being mindful. And every time you drift off of what you're doing, you just bring yourself right back. And that's the beginner's mind, which is really where we started, Bob, right? With beginner's mind. Yes, it is. So thank you very much for doing this, for having me. Um, I would encourage people to do whatever um, they can to look up things on mindfulness. There are some amazing um, apps out there that are both free and uh, and some of them are, are fairly low in terms of what, what you pay monthly uh in terms of practice and uh i would encourage people to explore mindfulness to to explore mindfulness meditation and of course MBSR uh take a look at the information at the UMass Medical School's website uh they have a, a profoundly wonderful program and terrific bunch of people there
1: great great advice and um just so everyone's aware what i will do is in the show notes i'll add links to some of the apps that can help out with great. Um, mindfulness and meditation. And um, I may end up having to split the podcast into two different episodes, uh, both released within the same week, just due to the length, because I think it's very important for uh, people to, you know, kind of listen in and really get an understanding of the program. And again, really appreciate you coming on the show today. And I hope you have a great afternoon. And I will try not to annoy you later on with one of the many ways that I do that. (laughs) Thank you. Everybody have a great day. And thank you very much. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks again for listening to In the Back Room with Bob Howard. And make sure to share your thoughts, questions, and ideas for future podcasts to Bob at InTheBackRoomPodcast.com. Have a great week.